Today I am joined by social anthropologist Dr Marlene Scherfers of Ghent and Cambridge Universities. She is a current holder of a Newton International Fellowship awarded by the British Academy. A fascinating area of her work is the study of the politics and poetics of Kurdish martyrdom. She has carried out extensive fieldwork in Turkey and has gained what I would describe as a unique and important insight to the complexities of martyrdom in the Middle East. Marlene, thank you so much for joining me today for Matters of Belief. Martyrdom is a topic which I have very little knowledge on, so I'm really excited to be speaking with you. I think that, in my mind, what first pops into people's heads when they hear the word martyrdom are topics like terrorism or dying for a nationalist cause, maybe even those who have been given sainthoods. But I imagine that martyrdom is far more intricate and deep than these initial thoughts might signify. Have you got any insight into the common elements or categories which expand across all examples of martyrdom? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, providing a clear-cut definition is always difficult for a concept that's so varied, that's embedded in social, historical, cultural practices and so on. So it's always hard to give you sort of a neat little tiny one-sentence definition. But I think what you write, you write in when you're saying that martyrdom today, when we hear the word, is often associated with Islamic terrorism, suicide bombing. Perhaps people might think of the early Christian martyrs, you know, people being torn to pieces by wild animals, um, you know, in in Roman amphitheaters, this kind of thing. Um, So I think martyrdom, when we hear it today, a lot of us, especially in the quote-unquote West, I think have this idea that it's a kind of archaic term, something that um, refers to violence, to sort of an excess of commitment, perhaps, you know, people being ready to sacrifice themselves for ideas that might not seem very relevant to the quote-unquote modern world. So I think there is something about martyrdom that runs contrary to these ideas of that modernity likes to have about itself and that the West likes to have about itself of being reasonable and moderate. Um, and, and martyrdom kind of is something that that is almost like a challenge to this kind of self-image. And and you, you notice how people are uncomfortable with it when you say it. People t- tend to put the uh, word martyr into quotation marks because it's sort of to, to, to kind of limit a little bit um, the excess that sort of seems to come with it, I think. And so, um, but my aim in my research um, and what has caught my interest in this is that while we tend to think of ourselves as having overcome martyrdom, having overcome this excess of violence and commitment and the success of archaic beliefs, perhaps, I actually think that martyrdom still has a lot of relevance today. And one area I think in which we can see that is uh, when you look at the construction of the modern nation state, um, we can see that martyrdom is actually quite central to what we call the social contract that binds states and citizens together. And so when you look at the social contract, actually what it says is that um, you know, you have the, the state that um, protects you as the citizen. And in return, you as a citizen are expected to protect the state and sacrifice your life for the state. And this finds expression in the modern nation state most commonly through military service and um, general conscription. And so it's also a highly gendered term in the sense that men are expected to be ready to sacrifice their lives, to go to war, for to keep the state, the sovereign, alive, right? And men are expected to biologically reproduce, 
the state by, you know, giving birth to children. Um, some of that is changing. We see that women nowadays, you know, are entering the military, for instance. Um, but nevertheless, sort of the foundational logic of the modern nation state relies on this idea of how in order to nurture and nourish the body politic, the sovereign nation state, it, re it relies on the lives, on the readiness of its citizens to sacrifice their own lives, which often then gets celebrated as martyrdom. So I think, you know, we have to remember that this lies at the very heart of how modern political communities are constructed. And so that's why I think martyrdom is very relevant to the modern world. And it might be less visible or subdued in some contexts and more visible in others. But for me, really, what caught my interest in martyrdom or what I'm interested in studying martyrdom um, is this relation of, you know, what, what does martyrdom tell us about how political communities are constructed and how co political communities are constructed, not just with reference to the people who are alive, but also fundamentally always include an element of, you know, the people that came before us and the people that will come after us. And so it's, you know, not just limited to the here and now, but political communities are always draw on afterlives, uh, on the dead, uh, as much as on the living. The label martyrdom, or when you assign martyrdom to someone who's passed, you, of course, yeah, it's an external label. So what kind of things are necessary in order for the label martyrdom to take hold? It, does it need to have mass consensus or a certain funeral? Does there need to be something to take place in order for someone to be named a martyr? Yeah, of course. So first of all, it's a, in, wherever you look, I think martyrdom is always a contested category. And it's a category that, um, while I said it's difficult to define it, martyrdom fundamentally has something to do with violent death in most cases. It includes an element of violence and suffering. And in a way, we can say that martyrdom gives meaning to some form of violent death, right? And it recuperates that death as something meaningful and as a sacrifice, as something, um, you know, if, if somebody dies and is called a martyr, then that person is not just a victim, but that death was meaningful. Um, it meant that that person has sacrificed their lives for some sort of cause, for a, a faith, for some sort of commitment, which can be, you know, in history that, you know, might have been the Christian faith, but it could also be today the modern nation state, for instance. Um, so the question of, you know, how, how does the label take hold or what does it take to turn somebody into a martyr? That's precisely what I'm looking at in my research. And I, approach it as very much a question of cultural, social, and political practice. So it's something that needs to be reiterated over and over again, something that requires social labor. So um, I'm interested in the kind of efforts and resources that people put into constructing people as martyrs. And that over history, you will see that this is something that um, is necessary in all cases. So people will use um, means like writing, um, telling stories. Um, today you have, you know, videos on social media. You would have songs, you would have films, you would have rituals, you would have processions, you would have official statements. So there's a whole range of social labor that goes into um, declaring people martyrs, declaring that death as something that is meaningful, as something that was not just for nothing. Um, and um, and as such, it's also very much contested. Um, so in the context where I work, for instance, um, so I do research on Kurdish martyrs um, in contemporary Turkey, um, but I also look at transnational connections. So I don't only focus on Turkey. 
Um, but um, what you see there is that it's extremely, extremely contested. So, and this you see in a lot of cases, whoever is, you know, somebody who's a martyr to one side in a conflict is often a terrorist to the other side, right? And so in the, in the um, Kurdish case as well, you see that while many Kurds might, you know, celebrate certain people as martyrs for having given their life to the Kurdish course, the Turkish state, for instance, will say, no, these people are terrorists, you know, we cannot label them as martyrs. And the label itself becomes extremely contested. Mm-hmm. This is really links back to what I said before, the way in which martyrdom is linked to the way in which political communities are constructed. And by declaring somebody martyr, you're making a statement about what kind of a political community you are imagining. And so, yes, it's an extremely contested label and it requires lots of social labor to be to be kept um, intact or to be created in the first place. Gosh, with the, with the focus on social labor, it just shows how fragile martyrdom is, um, which is really fascinating. But you mentioned your research in the Kurdish regions. Could you tell us a little bit about the history? It's quite complex, the history, and I don't think that people really understand um, what has gone on and what's continuing to be fought for now. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's something um, that is is not so much present, I think, in um, a lot of Western public conversations as as some other um, political conflicts and causes. So the Kurds is um, sometimes called the, the largest stateless nation in the world and they live across main now a lot of people also live in in the diaspora in europe and north america but mainly the kurdish heartlands are distributed over four countries so that's iran iraq syria and turkey and so basically what happened is that these are areas that used to be broadly under the rule of the ottoman empire and when the ottoman empire declined and eventually um, fell apart after the first world war a lot of those areas got uh, got carved up into what we now know as the modern nation states. And the Kurds had their own nationalist movement and they tried to make claims on you know, certain lands as um, the, what would be then a Kurdish um, nation state that they wanted to be founded. Um, but this, all of this happened obviously in a context of um, imperialism where large powers like Britain and France had a lot to, a lot to say and for various reasons that you know, we won't go into detail, but basically the Kurds ended up never being granted that nation state that they were promised at some point. And so they found themselves within the borders of these four nation states, Iran, Iraq, um, Turkey, and Syria, as quote-unquote minorities. Um, And in all four countries, even though this has played out in slightly different ways in all these four contexts, um, Kurds have been subjected to massive political violence, um, policies of both violent exclusion from the nation and inclusion. So in Turkey, you both have, for instance, violent assimilation. Um, So people are forced to speak in Turkish. They're forced to see themselves as Turks. and you also have violent exclusion. Um, so you have, you know, um, a history of quite brutal um, political violence wherever Kurds have tried to um, assert their own um, political autonomy or, or political claims. Um, and so I do most of my research in Turkey, and that's really the context that I'm most familiar with. And in Turkey, what you had is that in the 1920s and 30s, you had a number of Kurdish uprisings against the new Turkish regime that failed. And then in the 1970s, um, you had a new Kurdish nationalist movement that emerged from Turkish universities. And these were people that were very leftist, uh, leftist socialist revolutionaries who believed in, you know, Marx, Trotsky, Mao, Lenin, those were the great heroes. And that were very much, so you had both Kurds and Turks um, in leftist organizations. And eventually you had some Kurds that 
um, broke away from the quote-unquote Turkish left. And um, from there you have several Kurdish nationalist movements that emerged in the 1970s. And eventually there's one party that kind of um, became the biggest and the most influential, and that's the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Um, people might have heard of, of them. And the PKK in 1984 launched an armed insurgency, which uh, escalated into a guerrilla warfare. Um, and ever since 1984, there has been a war going on in um, eastern Turkey. The PKK grew to a massive guerrilla army, um, has massive um, support um, amongst a lot of Kurds in Turkey. Not all, by no means, but a, a lot of Kurds in Turkey are quite supportive of the PKK. And initially, the PKK fought for an independent Kurdish state. Um, you know, the idea was we want um, our own nation state. But over time, this shifted. And so in 1999, Abdullah Öcalan, who was the leader of the PKK, people might have heard his name, um, he was arrested. Um, he's um, imprisoned in Turkey to this day. And he developed over time a different kind of idea about what Kurds would want rather than a nation state. And he's been reading a lot of um, post-colonial, um, post-modern ph philosophers, um, literature, and so on. And he eventually came to the idea that um, the state itself is actually a means of oppression. So why would we want to have a state um, if states only lead to further oppression? So this is maybe not the best idea. And he, you know, they came to draw up sort of a program that the PKK has taken over, which is uh, strive to achieve political autonomy within the four nation states. So rather than saying we're going to set up our own nation state, we want political autonomy within the existing borders. Um, but... It's still founded on these very leftist ideas of a radical democratic council system where people would govern themselves from the bottom up. Um, and now, um, if people have been following a little bit news from the Middle East, in northern Syria, um, after um, the uprisings in 2011 started in, um, in Syria, the Kurds in northern Syria um, that, that live there, they have started to put these ideas into practice. And because the Syrian regime you know, never fully collapsed, but it lost control of parts of the country, the um, Syrian Kurds were able to establish a zone of autonomy and put these ideas into practice. And this is where you have um, these ideas about radical democracy, about a, a council system where people govern themselves on the level of the neighborhood um, being put into practice. This is, again, it's very socialist, leftist, very secular in many ways um, kind of program. And another thing that's really interesting um, about the PKK and the Kurdish movement in Turkey and now also in Syria, which people might have heard about, is that um, they are um, very much supportive of feminist ideas regarding the liberation of women. So the PKK from the very beginning had women involved in central roles. And in 1993, they founded a separate women guerrillas army. And we don't know the exact numbers, but they're estimates that up to a third of the fighting guerrilla forces of the PKK are women. Wow. And um, and one of the, the key parts of the ideology of the of the PKK is, as I said, that the state kind of is an instrument of suppression. So is capitalism, but so is also patriarchy. So the idea is that state, capitalism and patriarchy work together um, to create certain forms of oppression. And Abdul Öcalan, the head of the PKK that I mentioned, he famously said that, you know, a society can only be free if its women are free. So the idea is that we need to get rid of patriarchy in order to get rid of these, um, you know, relations of, um, of oppression. And so... Um, yeah, so they, they speak of themselves as um, carrying out a women's revolution in the in the Middle East. And this has taken up immense speed also now in northern Syria, where they've been able to establish 
um, autonomous rule in all the political organizations you always have two heads so you know from anywhere to a mayor to the head of a party will always be run by a man a man and a woman it caught a lot of attention so when um, the war against ISIS was raging in Syria there were a lot of women on the front lines Kurdish women yeah. who were fighting against ISIS and it caught a lot of attention of Westerners who kind of you know portrayed this as almost a surprise you know mm -hmm. this idea that oh you know Muslim women women in the Middle East tend to be suppressed they don't have a voice they they're always in the background you know they're passive and then suddenly you saw these women with Kalashnikovs yeah. fighting against ISIS it caught a lot of attention but there's a longer history to this and it's very much a you know a decade-long um, political labor of um, you know formation of ideology of um, infrastructures of institutions so within the Kurdish movement more broadly and maybe I, sh I should add that is that mm, the idea the martyrs are, are really the people who have joined the guerrilla forces and who have who are killed in um, in the conflict um, and who who are thus understood to have sacrificed their lives for the Kurdish nation for this leftist revolution that the movement is trying to push forward for Kurdish autonomy um, for Kurdish rights so it's what I'm mainly looking at is you know these guerrilla fighters and how they are celebrated as martyrs. Sometimes you also get civilian victims who are celebrated as martyrs. Um, so people who um, you know uh, during conflicts bystanders who might be killed they're also celebrated as martyrs at times. Um, but really the most of them are are the guerrilla fighters who have taken a conscious decision to you know leave their lives behind, join the guerrilla forces, and fight for the nation, the greater collective good for their people. Um, and these are the people that are mainly hailed as as martyrs. Okay, and with so many lives lost um, in this fight, have you noticed anything different um, in this research in your understandings of martyrdom? For example, with the amount of people dying, do you think that there's a psychological element to this? Like they use this as a psychological tool to continue the fight um, and just continue having that strength? I think, yeah, the... The question of how do you keep the struggle alive? So this is a struggle that's that's um, started in 1984, as I mentioned, and you know it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. And so thousands of people have died during this. And one of the things that I've observed in my research is that this is a major point of anxiety. How do you commemorate as martyrs individual figures when you have such a mass of martyrs potentially? And this is something that you that I see across a, a range of different genres of commemoration, um, where there's this oscillation between an emphasis on the individual. So there's a lot of emphasis on remembering individual names. Um, so when you look at social media, for instance, individual names of martyrs become hashtags. So you have lots of hashtags of individual names. Um, or when you look at um, commemorative videos, you have these videos that highlight the individuality of the person, their, you know, their preference for a certain kind of tea over another, um, you know, their, their little quirks and this and that. Um, the same when you have obituaries for martyrs, martyrologies, where people write about the martyrs. Um, there's this very much this emphasis, the idea that we need to recuperate the individual from the mass. And at the mm -hmm. same time, there's also then a shift of perspective at times to show precisely the mass of the martyrs and using that as an argument to talk about mm, the sanctity of the fight, the greatness of the fight. You know, we have lost so and so many martyrs. Look at the sacrifices we've done. So there's this interesting oscillation between a focus on the individual and um, embedding that individual within a larger collective kind of mass mortality. And it can be quite overwhelming sometimes. So there are these sites where, for instance, with photography as well. So you have... 
um, so-called martyrs houses where um, you know the Kurdish movement will put up um, so these will be quite simple houses, just basically large rooms um, that are used for congregations, for meetings in northern Syria and um, parts, partly also in Iraq and, and uh, eastern Turkey. And so people, these will be sometimes entirely um, covered, the walls are entirely covered in photographs of martyrs. So one photograph next to the other. Um, and it's sort of, it's again this oscillation between each individual face you know, a face of an individual, an individual fate, a life that was lost, and then just the mass of them together. So this is one of the things that has caught my attention that I find quite fascinating. And also just personally, it affects me every time when, yeah. you know, you see a, a, a lot of these young, they're all young, um, young oh, faces. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is one thing that, you know, relates to your question about, you know, individual and the mass in a way. Um, and you also asked about whether it's a psychological tool Um I guess it's, it probably is in one way or another. Um, as I said, martyrdom is a trope that gives meaning to violent death. Mm. It allows to see that death as having not been for nothing. You know, it was for something. It was a sacrifice. Labeling something as a sacrifice renders it, you know, is this idea that something was given up in order to, re- to get something in return, um, you know, which is eventually in this case the revolution, the liberation of the Kurdish people. You know, these are the sort of long-term goals that people are fighting for. I think... There is a psychological dimension, probably, um, and I'm perhaps not the most qualified person to talk about that, but there's also this broader cultural, social, political um, dimension to all of this. And as I said, you know, the way in which um, martyrdom or the celebration of the afterlives of martyrs martyrs keeps alive um, a political community, um, it sort of nourishes. It's almost like some energy gets released in the act of death. And once you call that a sacrifice, it's able to nourish a political vision, a community um, of people together. And this is what this is exactly what makes this very threatening to the Turkish state. So one of the things that um, we see in Turkey is that, um, I said before that um, martyrdom is a contested topic. And what we see in Turkey is that um, there is a veritable war going on over um Kurdish dead bodies and their afterlives. So um, what you see is that the, I said that there's a lot of social labor invested on the Kurdish side in rendering these people martyrs. But on the other side, the Turkey state was fighting against this Kurdish insurgency for years. They are fighting not only against the live guerrilla fighters that they are ultimately trying to kill. It's a war. But at the same time, they're also fighting against the afterlives that arise from this death. So what the Turkish state has been doing um, for years is that they, for instance, they don't allow funerals of guerrilla fighters who get killed in the uh, in the war. Um, often their funerals are prohibited or, you know, they're only allowed in the dark of the night um, without any attendance. They've been destroying funerals of, um, you know, people that the Kurds consider martyrs, um, but then the Turks would consider them probably terrorists. Um, so there is, you know, there, there have been, um, cemeteries have been destroyed, bombarded, um, bodies have been disappeared, mutilated. As I said, funerals are often not allowed. So there's a whole sort of um, a range of resources that's deployed from the Turkish side to prevent um, these people from being celebrated as martyrs. And um, a colleague, an anthropologist called Hishyar Ersoy, he's written um, about this. And what he says is that what the Turkish state is doing basically is trying to kill these people twice. So it kills the Kurdish insurgent citizen is killed. You know, his biological, his or her biological life is taken away. 
And then there is a second act of killing by the prohibition of funerals, the, construct, uh, the destruction of cemeteries and so on, where the Turkish state tries to prevent or kill those afterlives of these people as martyrs. And I think this tells you something about how politically powerful these afterlives are. The Turkish state, which is, you know, the state that has the second biggest army in NATO, so it's a state that you would think is quite powerful, is afraid not just of the living, but also of, you know, the, the dead. Um, and there is massive amounts of resources that are invested in trying to fight these Kurdish material afterlives. And, you know, I'm saying, saying all of this not to glorify any of these sides. It's a brutal conflict and, you know, many lives are lost. But I think it's, it's a conflict from which we can learn a lot about how our political communities are constructed, as I said already before, not just, you know, um, in uh, this worldly um, realm of the living, but how the dead and their afterlives play a massive role in, you know, creating political communities um, and keeping them alive. And so for the Turkish state, um, these martyrs are extremely threatening, which is kind of interesting because they seem, you might say, well, they're, you know, they're dead. Um, yeah. You know, what is there to it? It's just, you know, some sort of imagination on, on the part of some people, but it has very real material consequences. Um, and this is really what I'm interested in, sort of the contestation around that and What's the political power of these afterlives? And it makes sense if things like funerals are being halted um, by the Turks. It makes sense why there's such a focus on these photographs of martyrs and remembering the, the quirks of each individual um, and having an afterlife in the digital sphere as well. That makes it makes a lot of sense when you bear in mind um, the restrictions that are put in place in order um, yeah, to halt any celebration of, of or remembrance of them um, in a more ceremonial way. Um, so how did you conduct your research? Were you in Turkey? Um, and if so, did you live with Kurdish families? How did, how did it all take place? I should say I did my PhD. This is my postdoctoral project. And for my PhD, I did long-term fieldwork in Turkey. Um, so um, I know the context very well. I lived for one and a half years um, in Van, in the east of the country. And for my PhD, I worked with Kurdish women. Uh, singers, poets and activists. That social labor that goes into the production of Kurdish martyrs is a transnational one. It involves people in Turkey, but it also involves people in Iran, Iraq and Syria, but also in northern um, in Northern America, in West, West, Western Europe, um, in other places uh, in the world where uh, you have, you know, Kurdish diasporas, but also people, you know, who are supportive of the Kurdish cause, who are, um, you know, involved in this cultural production, for instance, producing books and movies and um, films and doing online activism. Um, so I'm interested in, in all of that cultural production that goes on. And this is something that you can study um, from a multiplicity of different field sites. Do you have any plans for future studies on different topics? Or are you going to focus your research on Kurdish communities and martyrdom for a while longer, do you think? Um, well, it's always, you know, um, difficult to say. I think I still have a long way to go with this project. I feel... Yeah. Um, I'm still only just beginning to understand um, all the stakes that are involved and um, the intricacies of what's going on. Um, so I think I will have a while to go with this, but I think I have this general interest, um, also my previous work of trying to understand really how political power is constructed through, mm. you know, the social cultural um, realms. And so I think this is something that will probably stay with me. Um, and I would like to continue working in this realm, broadly speaking, but who knows um, 
where where things yeah, take me. it's such an intricate topic. I mean, there's so many layers to it. But how did you land on it as a topic? How did it pop into your mind? Martyrdom was something that I didn't focus on in specific, but it did come up, um, you know, quite regularly. And I was also just fascinated how the dead in a way are very much present in everyday lives you know you will have a lot of people in the living room there will be a photograph of somebody um who has fallen martyr in their eyes um and um you know it's something that's sort of part and parcel of what shapes everyday life of people's conversations people who have dreams about martyrs they might have seen somebody they also have dreams about other dead and there are a lot of you know dreaming there's a lot of dreaming about the dead um, and, and so it's just sort of crops up in everyday life. And I think I just got fascinated by that. And I wanted to understand more about how, um, you know, our lives that I think from a Western perspective, we, we like to think of life and political life as very imminent, this worldly, you know, sort of something that's limited to the living. Mm-hmm. And, you know, death is sort of the end of everything. Death is you know, maybe there will be a funeral and this and that, but sort of death is fundamentally the end, certainly to political life. I think this is kind of an understanding in political science that, you know, um, the living do politics. That's kind of it. Um, but I think I got fascinated by the idea that, you know, maybe politics is not doesn't just end with death, you know. Um, maybe there's something, you know, there's something beyond. Um, and I think this opens quite fundamental fundamental questions about how even though we see ourselves as secular and you know certainly the Kurdish movement is a socialist secular leftist movement um that is you know by no means um it's quite different from um, what we imagine Middle Eastern political movements to be because we think they're all Islamic and Muslim and this and that and the Kurdish movement is not like that at all but still I think that we have to think politics always as something that's related to the otherworldly whatever that may be you know to certain afterlives that play a role um, in in how life in the here and now unfolds. So I think this is a broader fundamental concern that that I have in trying to to understand what's going on here. Oh, well, you've definitely hooked me, Marlene. I, I find it so interesting. So we'll definitely be following um, all your work that you do in the future and be keeping a close eye. And I'd love to get back in contact with you in the future to have another discussion because it sounds like... Yeah, there's a lot more to be unturned. Um, and uh, yeah, that's such an interesting area. So I really do appreciate your time. And it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast and, you know, um, letting me explain a little bit of the, the kind of things that I'm interested in. So I hope um, it will make sense to people um, who are listening. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Marley.